I'm Mark Carpentieri, and you are listening to Talkin' Blues. So it's an Italian name. Were you brought up Italian? Uh, actually, I, I was brought up here in the United States. I'm second generation. Uh, my right. grandparents, um, both grandfathers, came from Italy. Uh, both grandmothers uh, lived in the United States, and um, so yeah. So in terms of my background, I, I guess I'm a hundred percent Italian. And were you raised like? Is there a lot of Italian in your background? Like other than just you being mean like Italian? the language and things like yeah. that? No, no, not really. We were very much uh, Americanized by the time uh, you know my. Parents moved from the city to the suburbs, and, and that was really uh, something that, um, you know, they did. So I, I didn't really grow up bilingual or anything like that. I know very little Italian, a little bit, but not much. What did your parents do? Well, my father uh, worked for, well, he had basically three main jobs, and he's still working today at 91. Wow. He worked for an importer-exporter for a long time, and then he worked for my uncle, as a salesman for jewelry. And he, for the last 25 years, has been at Home Depot. Wow. You could be working for a long time then. Uh, you know, unlike my father who loves to work, I am really ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I play music, so I think that's fun. I, I would be doing that, you know. Right. So you started playing, like it's interesting because if I understand this correctly, Obviously, you, you had a love of music, but you didn't start playing till a little later. Yeah, that's correct. It was very odd how it all came about because uh, I played drums in school till about eighth grade. And then like everyone else, it seemed I wanted to play guitar. So at 16, I bought an acoustic and, you know, eventually I took some lessons and I practiced, but I was not really very good at it. And then... You know, I could play, like, I could play now, I could play chords, I could play songs, I took music theory, you know, and all that stuff, so I kind of know stuff, but right. my brother ended up getting a drum set, and I hadn't, hadn't played a drum set really ever, and within, like, a little bit, I was, I was picking it up, very coordinated, and um, then after he sold it, I had a chance meeting with some people on a, um, on a canoe trip, you know, a bunch of people went, and... The people that were on my boat was a guitar player. And he said, you know, I'm looking for someone, you know, to help me with this. You know, you, you can rent like these studios for the month. Right. And I had a drum set, which I didn't have to buy. And I was like, OK. And that really helped out because the other two musicians were so much better than me. And they were so patient with me that I really got uh, I, I really developed much faster than if I was playing on my own. But before this, you you actually had a blues radio show. Is that correct? Oh yeah, for te for ten years, 80, 1984 to nineteen ninety four, I uh, had a blues radio show at WBAU, Adelphi University. Uh, we used to have live shows there. We you know I got a chance to interview people like Dr. John and James Cotton and and people like that. So uh, I was knee deep into that. So tell me about getting into music and and i don't know if when you started playing no i know that when you started playing it was blues but when you first got into music was it the blues no it actually was like everyone else not everyone else i don't want to say that but you know as a suburban kid i had two older brothers and i was you know listening to what they're listening to 
And then by the time I was getting about 14, 15, you know, 13, I was starting to listen to my own stuff. You know, the, uh, I think the record I wore two copies out when I was about 13, 14 was Stevie Wonder songs in the key of life. Um, and then as I started getting into their collection, I uh, was starting to pick up more of the blues stuff, like the stuff on the Allman Brothers and and Eric Clapton. And then after that, you know, I was listening to a local radio station, WLIR, and they used to play blues. They used to play Muddy Waters and B.B. King in their mix, and I was, like, really into that. So that's how it kind of start, started, you know, when I was a teenager to, you know, seek out that kind of music. What, what do you think it was about the blues that connected with you? It just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, it just really did. It just knocked me, you know, sometimes you're hearing a song, it just knocked me out. It just knocked me out. And I was like, this is it. You know, this is what, this is how I feel. This is the grooves. This, it's just everything about it just, just, uh, uh, just did it for me. And was it that love that inspired you to get behind the mic and, and do a radio show? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I was a communications major in college, and I really thought I was going to be a, uh, a DJ. I mean, I wasn't had no intentions of playing music, especially when I started. And I was like, well, I'm going to get my graduate and I'm going to graduate and I'm going to be a radio announcer. And that didn't really happen. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I well, ex- explain that. Well, I, I just got the music bug and, uh, you know, I was working a couple of jobs. I was really painfully slow going through school because I was paying for it myself. Uh, it took me a long time. So I didn't graduate um, until 1980. So it took me seven years to get my undergraduate degree. Um, and by the time I got that degree, I was already playing professionally. Right. I know that you you went you were going to school. You're also playing in a band. You're also doing the radio thing. So why didn't the radio thing become the career? Well, I I, well, I think what happened was when I started in '81, um, I thought I was going to be a radio announcer. You know, I didn't have any. Uh, by the time, so that transition over the seven years was I looked at the life of. You know, a radio announcer, which is basically if you're a DJ, you take your first job in a small market and then you keep moving and you keep moving. And I really didn't want that. So um, I think that's why everything changed. Which is interesting because further on down the road, you made another decision about being a musician. Yeah. So you were playing professionally and then you decided, well, maybe this isn't the thing for you. Well, what happened was really the, the I took a uh, I was playing in Little Mike and the Tornadoes back in eight, parts of '86 and '87, and uh, the summer of '87 was really important because that spring summer of '87 we were you know uh, Mike and I was part of the band we're backing up people like Pine Top Perkins and Hubert Sumlin, and that's really when Hubert Sumlin first came out with a real band you know because he's he. Great player, but he's not a band leader. And those are two different things. So this was like the first time that he really was like out, out, you know, playing at Tramps and uh, uh, places like that. And, um, you know, it was great. Robert Cray, you have a picture of me, of Robert Cray sitting in with the band and Yorma Kalkinen sat in with the band. And um, uh, so (laughs) so after the summer, he's like, 
you know, Mark, we're ready to go. We have a record out, you know, let's go, let's travel. It's, you know, and I was like, no, <laughs> uh, you know, I did a trip with him down to Miami and I realized I am not a road musician. I'm not someone that's, you know, at that time, especially in the eighties, you could do that. You could, you know, hook up with one of these bands and, you know, play 200 nights a year. And I realized even at a young age that I did not want to do that. Can I ask? I mean, I, I would imagine why, but tell me in your words why that wasn't the thing for you. You know, I think the first thing was that first trip to Miami was so god awful um, <laughs> that it kind of ruined me. We had no gigs in between New York and Miami. So it was a straight mm -hmm. shot. And, you know, this van needed oil every, you know, 500 miles and. It wasn't air conditioned and it was like, you know, it was the worst possible, <laughs> it was the worst possible uh, uh, road trip you could have. I mean, the gigs were great in, in, in Miami, but, you know, it was rough. And I know that that's kind of the reality of many musicians or blues musicians for sure is, is to make a living on the road. But when you realize that maybe that wasn't the thing for you, was does that... Does that eliminate the possibility of becoming a professional musician? And did that shatter your dreams? No, it, it, it didn't actually, because um, at the time you could work a lot locally. And, right. it, and you know, the bands in the 80s here in New York were such a high level. Uh, there was such a great scene here in New York with the Lone Star Cafe, Dan Lynch's, Chicago Blues, you know, places like that. Right. So it wasn't as if I couldn't make a living at it. And I, it wasn't that I didn't want to go outside of New York because I always took my bands outside of New York. Sometimes we played Pennsylvania. Sometimes we played Connecticut. But I guess I'm a control freak. I just want to do it when I want to do it. Right. So it was not that, you know, I was going to shatter my dreams because, but it just kind of adjusted them. You know, I was trying to find out who I was and trying to find out how that all fit in. So neither of these things, whether you decided not to follow the dream of becoming a DJ or not to be a touring musician, these were not major turning points. I think it was in a sense that those realities, as I went through the, as I went through school that I wasn't, didn't want to be a radio announcer and this thing that I always wanted to be that I thought was going to be. So yeah, it was kind of a, I wouldn't say a shock, but just a, a, an adjustment. And then you continued to pursue your schooling, but at the same time, you somehow wound up in the record business. Well, I ended up uh, graduating in 88 and had my band, um, Something Blue, here in New York for 15 years. And um, at a certain point, I started recording my band um, to... You know, get gigs, you know, or you give out a cassette, you give out a CD to the club right. owner, you know. And uh, so I recorded a couple of them and I was working and I still liked my band playing out of state. You know, I always like to make sure my band was up to snuff. So I wanted my band, I wanted to be as good as the touring bands. So from one way or another, I was I, I this guy, Hooter, bass player for Big Jack Johnson and the and the Oilers. Uh, you know, he would sometimes book bands in certain clubs, like in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. And I was one of those people. Want my bands that we occasionally go out and do stuff. Um, 
so what ended up happening, he heard, you know, he listened to the uh, CD. He really liked it. He liked how I did business and then asked me would I be interested in recording Big Jack Johnson. And that's really when it became a label, 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 like international distribution kind of label. So initially it was just doing some recordings so you could get some gigs. Right. And then it became a label. Then it became, once, once, uh, uh, once that happened, then it became a label. And that was in 96. I'm going to step back a little bit. When you, when you mentioned that you were playing with Hubert and with Pine Top, tell me what that was like for a young musician. Um. You know, it was really mind-blowing, and yet it just happened. So in some ways, you're, you're playing, and you're nervous, and you're rehearsing, and, you know, I'm rehearsing. And, um, and then in another way, I guess I was just so new that, you know, I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't intimidated. You know, right. that was the thing. I wasn't intimidated. Robert Craig comes on stage. I'm playing. I'm just, I'm not thinking about it. You know, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just playing. And so it was, uh, it was really great. I got to drive Hubert uh, to a bunch of gigs as well that summer. You know, I had this big uh, country squire and he liked to lay down in the back because <laughs> it could, you know, he could lay down his legs all the way because that car was so huge. It was a 77 country squire. Can I ask you what you might have learned from that experience of playing with Hubert or Pine Top that, that, um, that you might have been surprised by that I could play with them. I think that was the thing that that I could really do this at at a high level, and that um, I also learned to always try to play with the best. And and that's why I was kind of hard, especially in the beginning with my bands. You know, I wanted the best players, and um, even though if I wasn't the best player. <laughs> Uh, I still wanted the best players as I, as I got better and better and better. What would have been your goal for your record label when you released that first um, first album with Big Jack Johnson? I was hoping that at some point I'd be able to make, you know, a real living at it. And, you know, that just didn't happen. You know, it was always part-time money. Uh, we just didn't have, you know, I just was never able to develop it to scale, you know, releasing 10, 12 you know, records a year where, you know, you're making X amount of profit per record. Uh, I, I just was never able to take that, that leap to doing. I always did two or three records a year. And right. that just wasn't enough to, to do that. So I was never, you know, I never came to that point where I had this plan where I could get employees and, you know, come up with that kind of cash to do that and have that leap of faith. Because it had been really expensive. And... Um, I, I, you know, it just, it just didn't happen. But you did well. I mean, you really, you've released a lot of albums. Uh, 60 records. Yeah. 60 um, records, six Grammy nominations. So not too bad. No, not too bad at all. So as you realized that maybe it wasn't going to be this full-time thing, but you, you, at this point you're teaching, is that correct? Well, I ended up, what happened was in, in about 2006, you know, for years I was getting interns from this college that's right by me called Five Towns College, and it's really an, uh, an arts college. It does uh, audio recording degrees and, and theater arts and music business. And then um, someone from the business department said, would you be interested in teaching this course record promotion and broadcasting? 
because I, you know, was in radio for 10 years. And of course I was promoting records for, for at that point, you know, seven, eight years. So I said, yes. And so I was, I was an undergrad, you know, I had my undergrad degree. And then at a certain point, especially with having three kids and all that, I decided to go back to school and get my master's. Um, and uh, that happened uh, from 2009 to 2011, I ended up with my master's. So, but thinking that you were going to become a teacher. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have been a teacher full time at, uh, previously for about two years. Um, but, uh, you know, I was what I was hoping was that maybe I'd get a gig at a school where one of my children would go and they go for free. <laughs> but that didn't happen either. <laughs> OK, so you get a chance to record with Big Jack Johnson. Tell me about that learning process well the learning process with big jack was you know every one of the things you realize when you produce records is every artist is different and as a producer you need to come up with different skill sets for different people and it took me a while to kind of get what jack does because he had this tendency to just keep playing he'd never come up with an ending so he would just keep playing and the song would go on for 14 minutes and then he'd just fade away (laughs) And it's like, Jack, we can't do that. <laughs> so eventually, I, I, you know, we figured out where I'd cue him to do the ending, you know, you know, that kind of thing. So right. I would cue him or sometimes we'd edit the song, you know, but I was trying not to do that because, uh, you know, I really wanted the live feel. But he uh, so, yeah, each artist has their own. Uh, peccadillos, if you will, when they're in the studio. Having been on the other side on radio. How much of that was helpful to you starting a label? Well, it was really helpful because, you know, I know what it's like to go into your show once a week and you have one hour, two hours, three hours. And, you know, how can I make, you know, how can I make this the easiest possible for the DJ to get the music, play the music, learn about the music? So getting all those press releases from all the labels, you know, understanding how that worked really, really was hugely helpful in um, in starting that. And what's kind of amazing is there's still people who I talked to in radio that were there for the first Big Jack record. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. They've been doing it that long. So once you finished with Big Jack, who came next? Odetta. One of my great pleasures was meeting Odetta. She was such a, an amazing person. Tell me about how that came about. Well, it was one of those things where I, it was one of those half jokes I made. Odetta, uh, my, my wife was a huge Odetta fan and a very important uh, person in the sense of, uh, you know, someone when she grew up, her parents bought Odetta records, you know, and, and she was a very important person in her life in that way. And wow. I knew of Odetta and I saw her and I, I used to play some of her songs on, on my radio show. And then I was reading an article from a magazine in the late 90s, must have been 98. And uh, they mentioned Odetta. I said, hey, how about we record Odetta? And I was just like kind of half joking. And then that idea kind of stuck in my head and then I reached out, you know, this is pre-internet, so you had to really ask people, you know, you get on the phone and ask people, like, do you know who this person is, who that person is, and how do you get to them and all this stuff? So right. I ended up talking to her manager, Doug Yeager, and um, 
she was playing at Boodle's Opera House, uh, which is up, I believe, in Orange County. It's not there anymore. And we had a chance to meet with her. And my idea was to do a blues record, you know, kind of, you know, she did one previously. Right. Uh, Odetta sings the blues. That's the one where she has got the nice cigarette smoking in the uh, on the cover. Yeah. And um, that's what I wanted to do. And then we kind of all figured it out. And then, you know, it was a much different thing because by the time we figured all that out, we were really using studio musicians and click tracks and, um, you know, using really some of the finest studio musicians, blues. I mean, they're studio musicians in the sense they're, they're blues guys, but they're studio right. musicians Seth Farber, um, uh, you know, Mike Merritt, uh, Jimmy Vivino, uh, people like that. How, how, what, where was her career at that point? Her career? Yeah. Her career was not really doing well. I mean, she played Boodle's Opera House. Uh, she was playing solo. Um, and, you know, I, she really hadn't had a record record out in a long time. And, um, um, you know, we drove her to her hotel. Right. And, uh, but I think, you know, she played her gigs. She had her coffee house gigs and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so it was a, it was a quiet, you know, she was leading at that point, I would say, a, a quiet career. And was she open to the idea when you approached her about doing a recording? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the thing was Doug talked to her, you know, that's, you know, you kind of have to, you know, there are certain ways you communicate with people, especially when you first meet them. Right. And, you know, Doug already talked to her about it. And so she was at least interested in least speaking with us. Um, so that was at least a, a you know an opportunity there. I wonder what kind of um, goals or expectations you had when you decided to approach her and do this record. Um, certainly not what it turned out to be. Uh, it was a much more modest goal. Uh, but as we started gathering people, um, it just became bigger and better, and. Um, um, really produced, I think one of, you know, one of the things about Odetta is, you know, she's kind of pre hippie, you know, and, um, uh, I think a lot of people always, when they think of Odetta, think of her, uh, you know, and they're, br I mean, they're brilliant records. I mean, those records she yeah. did in the fifties, but I think blues everywhere I go is, is just, uh, a revelation. It's, it's, it's still, you know, it's not because I produce it because I there's a lot of records I have that, uh, you know, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> but that record is just is just wonderful. And having Dr. John there was pretty amazing. OK, so what do you think that made that record that wonderful? Is it just surely just the people you're working with? Was it her? Oh, it's always her, because one of the things you realize is nothing is going to happen unless it happens through her, you know, and she's so musical and mm. She was so wonderful and and yes, the backing was perfect for her. You know, we you know, we auditioned, you know, some blues piano players and she hated them. And I said, well, what you know, I, and I these were these were really good piano players, but they were strictly, you know, they were really blues piano players. She says, I know what they're going to play before they play it. Right. So Seth, while certainly has a blues but as a much more broad background. And I think it lended to some wonderful arrangements that they did. Um, and uh, it just worked out really well. So when it 
when it exceeded your expectations, how did that change your approach to running the label or did it? Um, you know, I think what ended up happening was it, it, I'm not, I'm not sure if it really changed things so significantly because, you know, it's, it's just hard to do those kinds of records because that's really like a home run. You know, you're taking a chance on an artist that hasn't, and, but it certainly made, I think the label, that was our first Grammy nomination. Um, I think that put us on a different level. I think people, you know, started looking at the label a little differently with the people we work with. Um, right. and things like that, yeah. And then the other person that I found interesting was Marie Knight. <laughs> Tell me about how she wound up on your label. Okay, so we're doing the tribute to Sister Rosetta Tharp record. Which also did very well, did it not? It did. It didn't really initially. It was, uh, and, and what happened was it was a really, you know, it took me several years. That record took about two years to make. And, um... It was a few things about it. it it's kind of one of those records that, as it went along through the years, got gained more and more ground, especially as Sister Rosetta became more and more famous. And people were like, oh, there's a tribute? Yeah, you know, like that. But right. um, the record itself was in the middle of a lot of tributes. I guess that was the year 2003 was the year of the tribute record. So, it, it, I, you know, which, you know, I don't plan these things. I'm just, right. I'm making a record and I'm releasing it, you know. <laughs> so they, um, so initially it kind of got a bit lost, but it did present a lot of wonderful opportunities. And one of them was working with the fabulous Marie Knight, which was an accident. Um, I remember... You know, again, we're still not really in the age of the internet, 2002, 2003, to find things. Still a little right. difficult. And, you know, I'm talking, you know, one of the people that really got me started with that, that I reached out to was uh, uh, Maria Muldauer. And she was, you know, she really did the first sessions. We did those out in uh, San Francisco. Um, but I asked, I said, well, you know, you know, we were trying to get Mavis Staples at the time, and Mavis was uh, uh, Mavis was kind of at that point semi-retired, so it was hard to reach her. Um, but you know, we were saying, "Where's Marie Knight?" I mean, I didn't even think she was alive, I, and and we found out she was. And I got a phone number, and I called her. I said, "Hi, Marie. My name's Mark Carpentieri, and..." We're doing a tribute to Sister Rosetta Tharp, and, and I'd like you to be on it. And I basically hired her sight unseen. And I said, I had to offer her money, so I gave her what I was giving everyone else. And I'll meet you at the studio. I had no idea if she could sing. I knew nothing. I said, even if she just, tell, you know, even if I put a track on where she reflects on Sister Rosetta, I'll take that, you know, because if you could have Marie Knight, who was her partner for a decade, and when she was the most popular and they had these wonderful hits, that to me was worth it. I didn't care what she did. Of course, she ends up probably putting the most, certainly the closest to Sister's uh, kind of uh, style on the record, and she put such a powerful performance and at that time, what happened after the record came out was uh, Odetta's booking agency, Concerted Efforts, 
decided to say, hey, Mark, since we have Marie Knight and it's really legit, why don't we book a tribute to Sister Rosetta Tharp? I said, great. So now Marie Knight is working again. And uh, so what was she doing before? She uh, she was a pastor at a church. Oh, okay. uh, she was retired at that time uh, when I spoke to her. Right. And um, now she was back on the road. She was doing she would, you know, like if she had a gig in Albany, she'd take the bus up to Albany if she didn't, you know, like all stuff like that. That's crazy. Wow. So I have to ask about another one of my favorite guitar players is Rick. Holmstrom. Yes. How did you? How did that happen? Again, he was on a he was on another label, and it's 2007, and uh, a stroke of good luck for him, me not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so 2007, we do we do the record, we do his first record with us, and as he said, okay, I'm if if you ever read his biography, he talks about well, I, I did the solo record, I was ready to pack up the van. And he gets a call from Mavis Staples. And basically since then, he has been the band leader for Mavis Staples. Right. But you've recorded a few things by him. I did a second record with him. Yes. Yes. I mean, I I just love Rick's playing. And, uh, you know, I I like Rick a lot. And uh, I think he's he's those two records are are really well done. And uh, they're they're uh, some really interesting guitar playing. And, you know, I, I. I think he doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. And, and I think a lot of it's because he's such a, a humble guy, you know. Right. Yeah, he's amazing. He is amazing. Um, so when I when we look at those four artists, they're quite different. And then you have many, many more, like the Lee Boys and Joanna Connor. How would you describe your label, and how do you go about selecting the next artist to work with? Well, it was, it was pretty interesting. Well, I don't know if it's... I mean, it's interesting to me. I don't know anybody else. But, you know, <laughs> when I started the label, I said American Roots Music. When it first started, it was American Roots Music for the 90s. And so it wasn't specifically going to be a blues, hardcore blues label. I really thought of it more of a rounder, you know, right. that did a lot of different types of roots music. And, you know, in 2000, we did a Sleepy Little Beef record. Um, so... You know, that's how I kind of pictured it. So it'll, you know, I can go to the left, I can go to the right. And, you know, a lot of times in terms of finding an artist, it's it's a lot of times a matter of, of um, honestly just hearing something and like, wow, that'd be interesting. I wonder if they're available. <laughs> or sometimes people will send me uh, music and, and, you know, I get to listen to it. So it happens a lot of ways. But does that really happen in terms of getting unsolicited material and think, wow, this is good? Because I presume a lot of people send you stuff. Well, I think it's more what, like people I know, like a manager of someone. I, I don't mean right. like, I don't mean like, you know, out of the blue. Hello. Hello, person at MC Records. Here's my, you know, it's not like that. But a lot yeah. of times a manager will come to me and, and, and say something like that. Like, oh, I'm interested. You know, are you interested in this project? You know, Um and sometimes, you know, it just depends. So as you teach the music industry at school, tell me about that and and how that has changed or evolved over the years. Well, it was very funny in 2006 when I started, um, you know, every year I would say, well, the music business is going down. The music business is going down. And over the last three years, I get to say the music business is going up. And one of the things, listen, listen. <laughs> 
You know, I go back to the days where you would send a PO of a couple of thousand records to someone and the previous one would get paid because they knew they would get paid on that. And it's not like that anymore. And the thing I tell my students is, listen, it, you know, the record industry was this. It's not like that. We can't wallow in it and feel bad that it's not like that. It's just not like that. We have to understand what it is today. And when you get out of here, you have to figure out what it's going to be tomorrow. And but we do learn history because history can tell us new business models. I mean, iTunes is basically the business model of the Edison Phonograph Company. You create the content, you sell the content and you and you sell the players. Right. I mean, that's really what Apple Music did for a decade. So there's always a point to understanding history and then maybe applying it to something new today. So, you know, I never wanted to be one of those teachers that constantly said, you know, back in my day, (laughs) sometimes you have to say that. And that's true. You do have to talk about the differences and and the adjustments that have happened. But on the other hand, you you have to play with the cards you dealt with. And if you're going to go kicking and screaming that, you know, you don't like these cards, then you shouldn't be teaching, you know, future people in the music business. Okay, so the people who are taking your courses, are they people who want to be in record companies and in the concert promotion? Is that the, the I, I think that? I think the I think it's uh, all of those. I think there are some students who are musicians. Uh, a lot of them are producers. They're engineers. Uh, that's a thing that's that's a big difference today than, let's say, 20, 25 years ago. Um, you know, you have this opportunity to record yourself and use the tools and therefore, many people have now taken that advantage and want to be in the studio and take right. it to the next level. Uh, so I think I get people who want to be performers, people who want to be producers, people who want to be in the concert industry. So I get all of them. And there's still a lot of people interested in taking these courses. Yeah, absolutely. What have you learned from being a teacher and studying the industry? Well, uh, certainly the industry is, you know, the the business term is it's dynamic. Uh, So it's dynamic. In terms of what I've learned from this, from uh, a lot of the students is, um, you know, sometimes you talk to some people who are older and like, oh, kids today, you know, that kind of thing. And it's definitely not like that. The passion that these students have for music was as great when I was a kid. And and I think that's one of the um, I think that's one of the joys that I see in the students today. A lot a lot of people who don't you know deal a lot with um, you know twenty year olds and thereabouts that they feel oh the you know no one had the passion like we used to and it's really not true. They they're just as passionate. Well, that's good to know. Although it does seem frightening to me, but you don't think that it is that as frightening that that today's world offers its opportunities as well? I'm not sure of the question you're stating. Well, I just, I I look at the industry and and God knows what's going to happen after the pandemic. But I look at the industry as it was with streaming and and it doesn't look that positive to me. Oh, I didn't say it was great for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, as you teach these kids, you still have hope. Well, I, it, listen, there's a few things that's really important to, at least I get, that, I, you know, first, the, the, uh, the world, you know, in terms of being to access any kind of music at any time, 
is truly, if you think about that for a minute, is truly unbelievable. Uh, I can go to, I can go right now and listen to the Lomax collection that goes back to the 1940s if I wanted to, and I could right. listen to that all day. So there are some advantages now. Would I like it to be where people bought physical product? Because physical product is where everyone, the writer, uh, the artist, and the record label makes the most money. Sure. I would love that. And, and so, as I said, do I wish it was different? Sure. Can I, you know, you can't look, you know, it's like the old, uh, it's like the old saying, you know, I think it's Jackie Robertson said, don't, don't, uh, don't look back. They may be gaining on you. Um, so you can't look back too much or else you're going to just freeze and you really need to figure out how you can, uh, make this work for your artists and for yourself. Can I ask how you look at it and say, I need to do, what do I need to do today to make it work? Like how, how do you work that out? One of the things that, you know, as I look through what's happening is try to work with artists you know, there used to be a time where you could reissue recordings. I mean, one of our most successful recordings in terms of straight sales was the, uh, I believe, the second record we released, which was R.L. Burnside's Acoustic Stories. Right. Uh, he was he got really famous at the time and there was no back catalog on him. So the timing was perfect. That thing just I mean, we would sell thousands of those, like and not doing any work. I mean, we didn't have to take tons of ads and forward, uh, you know, re, you know, forward uh, concert. We didn't have to do that. It just was he had, didn't have back catalog. The record was great. Um, so you can't do that anymore. So that's the other thing that I learned. Um, I mean, I think that was uh, a harder lesson for me to learn during the the mid 2000s to the late 2000s, understanding that transition and how fast it was. Right, who could predict these things, right? Well, you couldn't predict it, but I think there was a, several releases that I probably should have been more aware of. So um, again, you know, I sit in the big seat, it's my seat, then it's my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you approach things differently? Like I know just you just did um, a Kim Wilson album. Well, that's gonna come out later. Album. That's going to okay, come out later so this year. That, um, basically, you have to be really selective of who you work with. The other thing is we do a lot more direct sales. Um, that's been a big help. Um, so meaning people write in and say? They go to our, uh, you know, they go to our store and they buy directly from us. Right. Uh, so that's been a big change uh, where... You know, for a while, we just didn't sell that much directly, you know, because there were so many record stores. You didn't have to, you know, and I think people want, you know, I think people at this point who love this music, they want to feel more connected to the artist. They want to feel more connected to the label if if they care about labels. And I think buying small um, helps with that. So, I mean, I, I, that's something that I've really worked at over the last few years is try to make that process as easy as possible, try to have unique products like autographed um, uh, and signed merchandise and things like that that can, um, uh, you know, help sell things. So if I, asked that, if I was to ask you in 2020, what makes you continue doing what you do? 
How would you answer? Is it just the passion that you have for music? It's the passion of music. And as long as there are releases that I'm passionate about, uh, I'll keep doing this. If I'm getting to a point where I look around and, and the music that is being offered to me doesn't move me, then we pack up the tent. How much playing are you doing now? Well, up till March, I was doing a lot of playing. <laughs> I ended up starting a band, which I promised I would promised myself I would never do. And then last January, not January 20, January 19, I decided to put a New Orleans band together here on Long Island. Um, and uh, it's it was going really well. We were working like two, three, four times a month. Um, it expanded my playing, which I really liked. And I, I really got to focus on a kind of music that I've always loved and was able to present. Wow. So did you ever consider recording yourself or is that just... I think at this point to record, I mean, we're, we're pretty much a cover. We, you know, we do covers of other people's stuff. Um, I mean, I have recorded us on video. That's back on Bourbon street. That's the name of the band back on Bourbon street. And so I have recorded it, you know, but to put it out in a sellable product, I have not. And I, I just don't know if I want to do that. I mean, if we were doing more original material, I would definitely do that, but there's, you know, that's the website back on bourbonstreet.com and you'll see a bunch of videos we did. And, and uh, you know, that's, you know, in terms of getting booked, if you will, that's mm-hmm. what that's what they're looking for. They, they want to see the video now. They want to see how you perform, you know. I don't know if you can answer this, but what's the difference between what you do and what some of your artists do? In what way? In terms of, you know, what makes them the professional musicians and what makes you, and I guess you're a professional musician, but you're not out there making a living just playing. Uh, for me personally, uh, which is really redundant, of course it's me, it is personally. Um, <laughs> the difference is, um, the difference is this is part-time money for me. And I try not to say that my level of playing is not up to that. Um, but I think what they're doing, because they're, they themselves are at a higher level than I am. I mean, these are like, you know, someone like Kim Wilson, Joanna Connor. These are people who have, you know, notoriety at their musicians and, and musicianship. Right. Uh, I'm certainly not like that playing the drums. I, don't know, I think I'm a pretty good drummer, but, you know, Drummer's Magazine's not coming out to me. <laughs> and I think, I think that's, I think because they're so great at what they do, then that drive to do it only is different. What's the greatest thing you've learned from doing what you do? Really enjoy each moment. Really pay attention to what you're doing and the good things that are happening. Because as we see with uh, this virus, uh, it could just end. I mean, mm-hmm. and you don't know that. So you think, oh, I'm going to, you know, you keep looking, you know, you keep looking in the future. Oh, I got to book these dates in the, in, or I'm releasing this record in the summer. And I'm doing, you know, you have to take that really great gig or, uh, you know, meet, meeting with a good friend or just going to a conference and seeing people you haven't seen in years. Uh, a, a little differently now. And I think being in the moment and enjoying that moment and savoring that moment is so important. Well said. 
Um, I know we've been trying to do this for many years. <laughs> I know it's it. it's it's. Uh, you probably could have gotten uh, uh, a president to talk to you quicker than me. I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking this time. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to finally uh, get to do this. Mm-hmm.